Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, hustlers. We know that this 2024, the entrepreneurial journey is filled with challenges. An often overlooked aspect is the time-consuming task of processing payroll and managing government requirements. And did you know that the average admin spends a whopping 50 hours per month dealing with just government compliance? That's time you could be spending on growing your business, or let's be honest, taking a well-deserved break. But fear not, we got a game changer for you. Introducing Sprout Solutions and their tailored solutions for MSMEs called the Payroll Starter. With Sprout Solutions Payroll Starter, you can finally reclaim your time and get your life back on track. Say goodbye to the stress of remembering tax dates or worrying about missed payroll runs. This bundle is designed to make your life easier and your business more efficient. And here's the best part. The cost starts just at 5,000 pesos per month for businesses with up to 10 employees. Yep, you heard that right. That's just 5,000 pesos per month. So why spend another minute drowning in payroll paperwork when Sprout can revolutionize the way you manage your payroll and government requirements? Take the first step towards a more efficient business today. Visit sprout.ph slash payroll starter monthly 5k. If you missed that, don't worry. We have it in the description box of this episode. So click that too. And again, big shout out to Sprout Solutions because your time is too valuable to be spent on paperwork. Reclaim it with their payroll starter. Now let's begin this episode. The Hustle Share Podcast is brought to you by B21, a platform which helps you start your journey with cryptocurrencies. Visit b21.io slash hustleshare and get $2 upon signing up. Also powered by Podmetrics, the only analytics platform you'll ever need for your podcast. Sign up now at podmetrics.co for free and use the code HUSTLESHARE. Well, when you're very focused on your career, there's a lot of sacrifice in that. And, you know, this early days in investment banking or consulting or PE, that basically you are working 100-hour weeks, you got a sleeping bag under your desk, you know, it's like that. Welcome to Hustle Share, the podcast that features the daily grinds of unique hustlers around the world to show not our differences, but that our hustles are very much alike. Now here's your host, Ronster Beitiong. Welcome to the latest episode of the Hustle Share Podcast. We have now made it to the tail end of this season and every single time we do a season finale. We need to be dropping bombs. And again, I've been trying to bug this guy to get on Hustle Share since last year. <laughs> Pretty sure he's half pissed to me already because he is legit. Because what we'll be discussing today is a very important of how the Philippines can now, you know, get into the digital age and how that would work. But before I get carried away, I need to properly give him his intro. So let's welcome to the show, the CEO and founder of one of the biggest, if not the biggest digital bank in the Philippines, which is Sonic. Let's welcome to the show, Greg Krasnov. Welcome to the show, Greg. And finally, we got you here. 
Oh man, what an entrance, man. Thank you, Ronster. I'm feeling extremely honored to be here with you today. Thank you. All right. Thanks again. I, I've been bugging you like a bitch for the longest time. <laughs> I just remember the first time I heard of you, you got funding at before you even had the teams. Like, hey, hey man, can I uh can I have you on the show? I really want to do this, but I think Timing is always everything. And now I have you as a season finale and you have so much to share over what you've been able to do in Tonic. But before I get carried away also, I need to ask you the million-dollar question. Greg, what's your hustle? Oh, uh, well, that's a very broad question. Look, uh, I I started my career in uh, private equity investing. So I don't know if you ever heard of the book Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, you know about KKR, early leverage buyouts. Uh, it's basically the business I was in for the first decade of my career nice. over in uh, Europe. And, um, you know, after that, I um, went off and kind of started this little company in Ukraine that grew into uh, a top three consumer lending bank there. It was called Platinum Bank. Uh, and that was a nine-year stint. And then after that, I came to Asia originally just to chill. You know, I came to Asia literally on a sabbatical, bought a sailboat, you know, cruised around for a couple wow. of years with my family. <laughs> You know, did the proverbial, like, you know, retired CEO thing, you know? Right. Um, but then, uh, like, I started looking around after a couple of years and I saw, okay, the whole consumer finance middle class phenomenon mm-hmm. that I saw happen in Central Europe and Eastern Europe and kind of, I was recognizing this movie, you know, I've, I've seen this movie, I recognize the script. It's with different right. subtitles, but like, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's very <laughs> much, you know, uh, the phenomenon is familiar to me. So I started building businesses here and I've, Basically been doing that for the last, uh, I think, uh, eight years in nice. Southeast Asia. I co-founded a bunch of fintech startups and, nice. you know, Tonic is the latest one. But Tonic is the first one that I'm actually running full time. Because all, all the other ones, I was kind of helping out my buddies to get things off the ground and giving them some funding and support. But with this one, I'm, I'm fully engaged myself for the last couple of years. That is amazing. Since you already gave us an amazing context of what your career has been, I need you to buckle up because we're going to have to ride the Hustle Share time machine. (laughs) Dude, all the way from Kiev to Singapore, we'll be riding it. Let's dissect it because in in Hustle Share, before you become the hustler, again, uh, people always think that Success happens overnight. It's, it's years and years and years of blood, sweat, and tears. Right? Now, I want to understand, since you already gave us a context you know, of what your career has been, I want to know what growing up was like. Did you have any influences about being an entrepreneur? And was there a chip on your shoulder when you were starting out, at least in a young age, at least through school? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that. (laughs) Yeah, look, my childhood, uh, I actually grew up in Ukraine when it was still Soviet Union. So there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurship going on back then. But then when I was 16, uh, my family moved to the States and we immigrated and it was a little hardcore because like we had refugee status and I had to like build everything from scratch. And I was the only guy in the family that spoke English. So, and this was in the middle of the Cold War. Well, this sure. was '91. Right? Oh, I'm not okay. that old. Prior, come, come on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I look old. Not bad, not bad. you're the so, only one who spoke English, right? Yeah, and so now you're all the way in the states. Yeah. So basically, like you know, the way that it worked out is uh, I, I had to pay my way through college in the states, and um, you know, my hustle was technology. You know, I knew a bit of coding from like my. I taught myself coding still in the Soviet Union. 
And so coding, fixing computers, you know, putting together custom computers. Back in the early 90s, it was a thing, you know, and you could actually make a fair bit of money on that. And that's the way I paid my way through college. That's amazing, Greg. And there's one thing about the Ukraine also, again, just winding back a little bit. For some reason, it's also a hotbed for one of the best engineers in the world, always. Like, you know, it's it, they create great product. Because in my previous startup before Podcast Network Asia as well, we, we make chatbots. And it's always the Ukrainians who are always like, man, they have made amazing bots. And, you know, the, the platforms where you make chatbots and all that in the Ukraine has always been an Eastern European thing. I'm also curious, why is that region such technologically advanced? Because still now it is one of the hotbeds of great product. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually very true. And uh, the reason there, there is a literal like, you know, a very bona fide reason why that's the case. Because in the Soviet days, uh, Ukraine and especially eastern parts of Ukraine were specifically developed for all the high-tech industries in the Soviet Union. The aerospace wow. industry, the like, you know, the early day computer technology came out of that. Amazing. So, like places like Dnipropetrovsk and Kharkiv in Ukraine specifically, like these right. towns, the, in the universities in these towns, they just created like these high-tech industries. And so, a lot of people there that are like very well educated uh, with a lot of engineering and tech backgrounds. And yeah, Ukraine, you know, some of the things that, you know, I learned as a banker in Ukraine are things that were way ahead of a lot of the rest of the world. You know, we were among the first guys, I think, in the world to be playing with big data for credit scoring. You know, uh, we did yes. that before we even knew it was called big data. You know, we had a pilot with a local telco uh, at our bank that, you know, me and my CRO initiated. Ultimately, you know, one of the companies that I built in Asia uh, with, with this uh, guy, with Peter, my C- former CRO, uh, a company called Credilab that came out of that idea. Wow. Know, okay, hey, we can use the device data, the telco data to score customers because it's Amazing. you know predictive stuff. So yeah, that's that's the background why. of uh, why Ukraine is. Uh, and I think uh, yeah, a bunch of guys in Silicon Valley they have Ukrainian roots and like right. WhatsApp founder. You know, he's mm, exactly. Guy. You know, the Google guys. You know, um, there's there's one gentleman there I believe with some Ukrainian roots. Right. Stuff like that. Again, the, the, again, just just coming from experience, the, the, the Ukrainian chatbot developer is just from a couple of years back. Man, I can't even throw anything. I was like, wow, just this amazing, amazing uh, work. And now, as as with that background, coming into the states again, uh, immigrating, especially as the first generation, that's never easy, especially in the states. What were the hurdles that you had to overcome? Because again, you you also went to the desert to to, to study college in Arizona, Arizona State. Right, you know James yeah, Harden's yeah, uh, James Harden's alma mater. So I'm pretty sure you 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 know. But what what was that like? Because again, there's always discrimination in one form or another. What was that like, and how how difficult was it to hustle for college and also again adapt with the nuances that you had to go through as an immigrant? Yeah, I look. I, I was lucky that you know I've studied English for a long time before I got there. So like my English was pretty good. You know, I had to pick up the American accent because I was taught the British accent. You know, and then I, I got a lot of flack right. for that in Arizona, of course. You know, sounding like a Brit, you know, didn't sit well with them, especially <laughs> in the early nineties. Like, what is this Gopnik doing here? Yeah, exactly. So I was like, what the hell, man? You know, speak normal. You know, like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Why do you say host? It's not a host. It's a house. You know, like <laughs> it's a different host. Okay. Yeah, different, different thing, man. Different thing. So um, no, it was it was it was a very interesting experience. You know, I learned a lot, and I think I picked up, uh, you know, in the U.S. the American hustle, right? 
I had some really good guys that I've met back then. You know, one of them was my uh, boss at the uh, one of my first places I worked at, Bernie Reicher. You know, amazing dude. He's like he's been a hustler his whole life. He's been like building businesses in all sorts of segments. So like working for him and like observing how he functioned, just like I learned a ton. And you know, a few people like that uh, on my path in the U.S. that I really picked up a lot from. Very grateful for that. Got it. All right, now let's talk about your life into banking, right? Private equity, bank, and BA. You know, from being in tech to finance, was there a big adjustment that you did? Because that's a whole nother field of a jump that you had to do, right? What was your first hustle like, and who were your first mentors? What were the things that you actually learned also while you were in BA as so a private equity banker? My, my logic on that was actually pretty simple, because like immigration, you know, those of us with the history of that. One of the things, you know, like it, it puts an imprint on your brain, which is like money, financial success, right? It's like yeah. you really get that chip on your shoulder when you land some country that you don't know anything about with a couple of suitcases and it's like a safe <laughs> swim, you know, <laughs> you're left with a chip on your shoulder the rest of your life, basically. So Correct. for me, like going through college, it was, okay, which career path can I choose that gets me you know, as quickly to the pot of gold, you know, yes. and that kind of financial, you know, success and independence, et cetera. And, you know, investment banking, private equity, like seemed like uh, one of those top choices. That That's the reason I went there. Uh, it was not possible to do that coming out of Arizona State because like investment banks and like uh, private equity funds, they don't hire out of state schools in the States. Um, so I actually uh, decided to go to Cambridge in the UK for my master's. Wow. And after that, you know, because like all these investment banks, they all focused on Ivy League and Oxbridge for their recruitment processes. Right. So if you want to get into that pipe, like you had to basically um, uh, go there. And yeah, then I got uh, very lucky that most people, they just land an investment banking job or like a McKinsey job coming out of, you know, Oxbridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was lucky that... Uh, one of the banks um, uh, was interviewing for private equity. And usually you can't get into private equity directly out of college. You have to like work in consultant or investment banking first. But I got very lucky. They were looking for a guy with my language skills. Um, and so that's how I got into Bank America. And the learning from that was you know, amazing because I got to see you know, hundreds of businesses all over the continent in Europe, you know, learn them, study them from the inside, study the strategic dynamics, um, you know, build uh, financial forecasts and kind of gives you massive, massive strategic insight when you've done that for a while. And I had really good guys that were my bosses that I was learning from. You know, they, they were very, very experienced people. You know, Wojta Gotz, uh, Lloyd Perry, you know, those were like my main mentors at Bank America Equity Partners. So. There you go. Now, I'm also curious though, because if you had that chip on your shoulder and again, you had to go to Cambridge just to, to give, give yourself a shot to be one of the boys in, in investment banking. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of sacrifice and early hustles that you did to, to be able to give you that head start that you needed to get to that pot of gold that we're talking about. Were there any early sacrifices that you remember doing in order for you to get ahead and really get the, the acceleration that you needed to do well in, in private equity? Because after that, you also did private equity, but now it's a manager and director in Innova Capital. Well, when you're very focused on your career, there's a lot of sacrifice in that. And, you know, this early days in investment banking or consulting or PE, that basically you are working 100-hour weeks. You got a sleeping bag under your desk. You know, it's like that. (laughs) So it's like a social life. I was literally having dates at Heathrow Airport. 
Because, you know, the girl uh, I was dating, she was an investment banker with a similarly grueling schedule. And, like, I was flying, she was flying out, like, you know, we'd, like, have lunch, you know? Like, <laughs> so, it's, um, wow. uh, so it was, it was pretty, pretty rough on the social life in the early years. But then over time, like, it gets a little better. But travel was, you know, probably one thing that was really, really grueling. And right. I'm not, uh, like, last year and a half has been very strange for me like being just sitting in Singapore. But like I tell you, it's, you know, I was at the other extreme of this where, you know, I had like 10 flights a week and what? that was no fun either, man. No fun. No. So. People think that, you know, you want the jet setter lifestyle. There's two types, you know, if as a tourist and yeah, you can chill out. What if you're in a business travel? My God, it's no fun. You have jet lag and everything else in between. You don't get to enjoy the place that you really get to stay because you're literally just coming in and out and doing things. And I, I totally agree. I mean, I do a little bit of that before, but not 10 flights a week. My God, I can't even imagine. But when you now double down in this career and you go all the way to the Urals and now near Poland, when you became private equity and managing director, what was that shift like when you're now the one as the head honcho doing private equity? What, what was this, those things that you did? Well, the title really sounds a lot better than it was, man, because like in private equity, <laughs> the managing director is actually one of the junior partners in that particular fund structure. So there were a bunch of us. And yeah, it was a big step up for me from my days in London at Bank of America, because in London, I kind of learned the leverage buyout trade. But uh, in Central Europe, in Poland, Czech, Hungary, like it just started happening at the time. Because like, you know, leverage buyouts means you're leveraging the earnings of the company. You're bringing debt in to help you buy the business. But that means the business needs to be stable enough. So Central Europe needed to develop some stability first. But once they had the stability, then the guys that, you know, were sitting on pots of money, they were kind of going, okay, this leverage business trade that KKR invented, that sounds pretty good. Maybe we can do it here. That's kind of how I got hunted into that position. And it was very interesting because like we were doing some really pioneering stuff. I was structuring some of the first leverage buyouts in, uh, in Central, um, uh, Central Europe at the time. So great learning, great fun. And what were the businesses you were investing in or hunting for per se to support? Because that's also, again, there's, if you see patterns, there's the same movie that you saw at that time in, in Central Europe as well, in, in Eastern Europe as well. And you see the same patterns that are now happening in Southeast Asia. What were those in patterns like and what were the companies you were supporting back then? Well, the most interesting one was definitely uh, consumer finance and retail banking. Because uh, what I learned from that, uh, well, it started happening in Central Europe, like in the mid-90s and went on through like mid-90s and even late-90s. And it's, now it's like slowing down. But basically when middle class evolves and middle class starts having some disposable income, uh, the middle class and his wife start thinking, hey, maybe we should leverage that income to buy a washing machine or a fridge or a big TV that our neighbors have. And, you know, or, you know, maybe it's a new motorbike. So, you know, and, and at some point, you know, people like graduate to the next level where they start having savings and thinking about a mortgage. So that whole thing evolves. And I saw how that played out in Central Europe. And a lot of private equity guys like us, we made a lot of money on that, investing in these types of businesses. Uh, so that gave me the confidence uh, because Russia and Ukraine, they were about a decade behind. So when I saw the same thing start happening in Ukraine, I kind of jumped in and made a small angel investment. They just kind of wow. ended up sucking me in full time and turned into that bank, you know, that, uh, that I built in Ukraine. Yeah. Right. And 
what is it like? I've never had a, a person here in Hustleshare for two years and a half now that I'm doing this that, that founded a bank. And again, if you say, say that Russia and Ukraine or the former Soviet Union was 10 years behind, what was the missing pieces that weren't there? And how did you start a bank in your home country? Well, it's not that I set out to start a bank. You know, I was attracted by the investment proposition, right? And like mm-hmm. I was trained in that way. And like since then, like every yeah, company that I started, opportunities. it's always like an investment proposition, right? And the investment proposition was to generate outside shareholder returns on a specific space, which is consumer lending, right? Mm-hmm. But like if you want to do consumer lending at scale, you need balance sheet because your raw material is literally money, right? Exactly. So you need access to the raw material. And access to the raw material, if you want to scale into like hundreds of millions and billions, the only way to do that scalably is to have a deposit business where you're taking retail deposits. So that's kind of how, you know, as soon as we started scaling that little business in Ukraine, we started thinking, hey, we're going pretty fast. We're going to need some serious fuel. Uh, Let's try to get a bank license. And we ended up putting it together with a bank that was owned by a large private equity fund. So we just merged it and like I became the CEO and founder of the combined entity and we grew it on that basis. Got it. Now, last question before we take our first break. So Greg, you know, there's one thing about Platinum Bank that you created in Kiev, right? That you, you exited this business for $150 million in Ukraine, right? So Talk about how that happened and what did it feel like or what, what is the hustle that it uh, took to get the bank to be acquired at that level? For eight years of your life, you did this. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it was a process, right? It, uh, I was backed by a bunch of private equity funds. I got a surprisingly small part of the $150 million personally, because right. like by the time we're done, you know, we, we have to attract a lot of money from investors. And the investors have a clear exit horizon. You know, they typically invest for three to seven years. So um, once you know, that exit horizon was reached, the investors said, hey, we need to seek an exit. Let's start an exit process. We hired an investment bank. They wrote a nice book about us, you know, send the book around the world. And uh, we started talking to people who were interested. The guys that were most interested turned out they were inside the Ukraine to begin with. Wow. It was a local holding from the south of Ukraine. So nice. um, they acquired us. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the strategy that they had for the bank didn't sit well with me because their idea was, hey, let's take more deposits and lend to our loss-making companies, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of going nowhere. So right. I kind of said, okay, guys, here are the keys to my Mercedes. If you want to drive it into the wall, go for it. But, you know, I'm not going to be in it <laughs> while you're doing it. So uh, broke my heart because, you know, ultimately they broke the bank, right? Uh, the bank actually was closed down by the, by the regulator mm-hmm. after a few years of uh, their ownership because of these issues that they created. Right. But like, yeah, it was, it was an amazing process. And, um, you know, it was a real heartbreak for me to kind of part with that venture because it was such a big part of my life yeah. and such a big part of my identity. But like, yeah. you get over it, you know, you practice non-attachment, you yep. train a little Buddhism, you know, uh, <laughs> and you get over it. <laughs> right, absolutely. But sorry, I'll just add one last question. Remember the chip on your shoulder you talked about, you know, going to the US, you know, having to to hustle your way. And I'm pretty sure at this point, that pot of gold that you were looking for, you've already had it. Describe to me, you, even though, you know, it's a, it, it's a, you, you, it broke your heart, but I'm pretty sure on a personal level, you're set or you, you've achieved a lot of those things that you want. 
right? At that point, what was your mindset like after that exit? You know, even if it did, did break the back in the process, but I know at the start, you can now think of wider horizons that you didn't see. The, okay, so I can do this now too. It, it set you free uh, as well. What was that feeling like? Knowing that the pot of gold is now in your hands, it's the bag is secure, and you have a whole new horizon to look at. Yeah, Ron, that's uh, uh, that was a tremendous experience, man. Uh, I was lost. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, like after I got out of the bank, man. So yeah, I was kind of trying to figure it out, and I was saying, okay, here's all this hard-earned liquidity, as you say, right? Um, what do I do with it? How do I, you know, invest it profitably and so I don't lose the money and kind of, you know, have, uh, you know, that sense of comfort. Uh, I paid a lot of attention to myself. I lost like 25 kilos, uh, you know, wow. the last part. Yeah, man. Like, you know, I was, I, I, unfortunately, I gained it all back when I got, went back into business. You know? <laughs> and some, it's a right? chicken rice in Singapore. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's well, a you get, man, you get to see it. Yeah. Like, man, the, the food here is amazing, right? So it's yep. like <laughs> yep. the foodie capital of the world. So yeah, for me, that was uh, really interesting and um, very liberating uh, and opportunity to focus on myself. I read a lot. I wrote a lot. Uh, I actually wrote a book for myself called, you know, Greg's Investment Strategy, where I like, wow. I read like all these things, I internalized them, and then I kind of spit them out into what I think is interesting, what I think is not interesting in the world at large, right? From the point of view of future upside or downside. So I just feel like that was kind of, that was my PhD, right? I educated myself. That was kind of like, yeah, uh, really cool. And from that came a few of the ideas that I then executed as part of, you know, my investment vehicle forum, uh, including Tonic ultimately, you know, because that was uh, one of the things, uh, yeah, I learned. Now, since you mentioned the ideas, let's take our first break and when we come back, let's now talk about it, dissect what those little ideas that you had, not the little ideas, huge ideas that uh, put in the, the book that you wrote for yourself. Well, let's talk about that more after the break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, I have a very, very exciting opportunity I want to share with you guys. If you're a B2B startup founder, listen up. Your ticket to growth is here. Introducing Impact24, the Philippines' largest B2B SaaS challenge. Calling all startups in their pre-launch, pre-seed, or seed stages. This is your chance to accelerate their growth. Submit your pitch to Impact24 and get ready for a 10-week intensive program to elevate your solution. What's in it for you? How about up to 500,000 pesos in MVP project support, exclusive credits from industry partners, personalized mentoring, and a shot to pitch 
at SASConPH, the country's biggest SAS conference this April. But yo, you gotta hurry up because submissions close on January 26, 2024 already. Don't miss out on this opportunity to take your startup to new heights. Apply now at saschallenge.ph. That's saschallenge.ph. And good luck and I'll see you guys in Impact 24. And we're back from the break. We are still in our season finale with Greg Krasnov, again, who then told us how he was able to then exit and build his career up. But before I get carried away, I also want to, again, do a little shout out to our friends. We want to say hi and big thanks to the guys from Kumu. Kumu is a Pinoy live streaming app where we can connect or make tambay with Filipino streamers and celebrities. Use our link in the description to follow some amazing Kumu streamers. Now, after writing the book, Greg, you went all the way to the other side of the world, the Singapore, to, to then, you know, be the founder and chairman of Forum. But I want to also understand, how did you come up with Forum and why fintech uh, as, as this whole thing? Is there an inflection point that happened before you got all the way here? Again, you, you, you were buying a yacht and whatnot, but how did this happen and why Singapore? Yeah, so, you know, the book that I mentioned, I was actually writing it in Thailand, in Koh Samui, because um, oh, like, wow. that's where we went after, uh, after Ukraine. And we're just like hanging out there. And, you know, part of that book, uh, like a lot of it was focused on technology and how technology is influencing the world and how these technology businesses are coming together. And one of the things I came to realize is just like, you know, the technology advances that have happened over the last 30 years, Mm -hmm. there's like trillions of dollars of unexplored economic potential in those technologies already, because like, it's now all about like people taking different pieces of technology and combining them to solve a use case, right? And like, you know, that's that's how different businesses are built. So I kind of said, okay, well, the technologies are already there. Yep. You just need to like find the use case for the proper combination of them that will be, you know, massive and where you can kind of leverage those technologies to the highest benefit, right? Right. Um, and, you know, the highest benefit of the customer ultimately means also the highest benefit of the shareholder. So customer means where is the biggest markets? And, you know, what I knew well was consumer lending, right? Because I've, I've been in this yep. business for a while and I kind of said, okay, what does it look like in Southeast Asia? And then I saw, okay, consumer lending just starting to happen here. The yep. scale of the opportunity is into the hundreds of billions of U.S. dollars. Yeah, um, enormous. You know, it's basically, yeah, just per capita comes to Latin America or Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see Indo-Vietnam, Philippines, the three markets, yep. half a trillion dollars worth of asset class in the making on consumer exactly. lending, right? And then when that is happening, what is the biggest single hurdle to reaching out and lending to all of these unbanked and previously unlent to consumers? It's credit risk, right? right? It's, you know, it's the banks will not do it until they know who to lend to well, right? And how do you assess these people, right? And if they do go bad, how you then get the money back? So those were actually the first couple of ideas that I started out with my friends, uh, you know, from uh, Platinum, um, with Peter and with Tomas. One was a company that was focused on making credit decisions using digital data, uh, digital footprint of the customer. And the other one was focused on collecting the money. Uh, If the customer does go delinquent, how do you use technology to quickly and cheaply enhance the return of that money, right? Without wow. going and breaking people's knees, but using, you know, advanced 
like bots and you know predictive analytics etc right mm -hmm. and do it in like super civilized manner so uh those right. were the first couple of things we started uh forum was just you know like my investment vehicle and then once those businesses got off the ground you know i moved to singapore to help my friends out right. uh to build these businesses further and then i had to kind of explain what i do because you know they could explain hey we're the ceos <laughs> and i'm right. like well i'm greg and that didn't really work, you know, like, <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, basically like forum, that's when I kind of analyzed, okay, what is forum forum is basically a FinTech venture builder, right? That's, it's a business model, uh, in and of itself. Um, and, uh, you know, I did a bit of a PR upgrade, put out a website for forum, all of that. And then did a few more businesses within forum under that business model. Um, but like that's that's just how it all started. And at this point, you know, Forum is basically just holding vehicle for for all exactly. these uh, VC interests. And we've done really well. None of the businesses have shut down. Uh, one of them nice. we exited. You know, Asia Credit we sold to GoBear last year. Uh, fortunately, wow. we got paid before they got uh, went belly up. Uh, so, yeah, um, okay. the, the three others, you know, four, four others, they're, they're all in good shape. They will pass their series A's. Uh, so like the attrition rate has been really good. And I think the reason is because, you know, I've, I've been leveraging the expertise that I previously had Correct. and not just like investing blindly VCs do. Yeah. Yeah. So out of, out of 10 startups, you know, like eight will fail. Right. And in our case, like none have failed so far. So fingers crossed. Wow. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And again, that's a testament to your previous hustle of finding good businesses and opportunities and also recognizing the patterns that you've seen in Central Europe and Eastern Europe and also in your even all the way in your early days in Bank of America. You know what a good business model is and you know what to see in, in an underserved market. Now, let's talk about underserved market because you, you just didn't stop as well. You went full on now with Tonic, right? I'm curious though, among those patterns that you've seen before, what did you see in the Philippines that made you really decide to create a digital bank here? Because again, fintech, there's some there's some incumbents here. You know, they're they're not dominating it. There, there's still a lot of room for growth. But I'm pretty sure you saw something in the Philippines that you, you you've seen before that it can be also be helped with now with also more advanced technologies that you've built with before. No, absolutely. And that's that's exactly actually the way that it worked out is like it's it was very much a merit-based comparison between different markets. So um yeah, I can just like rattle off a couple of the big things. Number one, Philippines is the most advanced digital market in the world in terms of FaceTime. You know, uh, people in the Philippines love technology, you know, very young population, super digitally native, 10 plus hours of screen time a day on average, like you know, the first 10 likes on any Facebook post I put out there is from my Filipino friends, invariably. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like Filipinos just seem to be online all the time. Yep. <laughs> you know, yep. so it's, uh, it's, it's great. So like, you know, people are really hungry for uh, technological solutions and the mm -hmm. banks are not giving them that for the banking um, needs that they have. Correct. So that's one thing. Second thing, of course, huge population, 110, 111 million population. Uh, it's a very large market, very large economy. They and love to procreate too. That's uh, why they absolutely. have this <laughs> yes. I'm not yet sure how we tie that into our business model yet, but like, you know, we need to figure it out. If we figure uh, it out, we're golden, man. We're okay. golden. <laughs> so, but basically, yeah, it's, um, uh, if you look at the penetration of consumer lending within that economy, like Philippines is literally uh, the lowest anywhere in emerging Asia 
uh, on percentage of GDP. So it's like five times below uh, the average for Southeast Asia. And it's behind, on percentage of GDP, it's behind Bangladesh, it's behind Myanmar, it's behind Nepal. It blows me away, right? When I saw those stats uh, and like, those stats are not like easily available. You have to like sit down, compile, go yeah. to central bank websites, get all this data. You know, so I, I did the exercise, right? And then when I realized that it blew me away, just how little Philippines is really penetrated with consumer lending, how far behind it is. And then I start thinking, okay, why, right? And then you see, okay, banks, only 4% of the Filipinos that borrow, borrow from banks. Why? Because right. banks don't know how to lend to the 70% that don't have the bank accounts. And they're not really interested in that. That's a whole legacy. That's a whole history. To lend to those, uh, you know, 70%, you need those digital tools. And it's really hard for the banks to adopt those. So, you know, those were some of the drivers. And then if you look at that raw material, the money, the deposits, you know, right. what you see in the Philippines, it's an enormous raw material market, 300 billion US dollars of deposits in the system today. You don't need to reach to yeah. the unbanked to get the deposits. You just need to get some of the guys switching from the BDOs and BPIs of the world to you. And you can finance that lending book all day long if you can tap into that 300 billion of deposits. So those were the drivers I saw. And that's when, you know, uh, me and, uh, you know, my team members, that's when we went to the BSP. And my co-founder at the time, um, like we, we, we also uh, met uh, at that point, Long Pineda, our uh, now country manager and president of the bank in the Philippines. So we came to the BSP, we said, look, guys, this is what we see. We think you care about financial inclusion. We care about financial inclusion. We want to solve it. We know how to apply tech to solve it. Here's our track record on solving it in other places. What do we do about the license? Because you got 500 rural banks, but we don't want to buy any of them because they're, you know, pretty, pretty uninteresting, <laughs> you know? Yep. So, and we need like a proper digital license. And they mm -hmm. said, okay, look, um, let's, let's work on this. Why don't you guys apply for a clean, new, shiny rural bank license? And we'll call you our pilot and you'll be our guinea pig. And we'll make mm -hmm. like the exceptions necessary to make you run a pure digital business on the back of it. So that was another big driver for us that, you know, that kind of a conversation with a regulator, I don't think it could have happened in Indonesia or in Vietnam, right. the cultural factors there. I think Philippines, you know, was, was very uniquely open to that type of a situation and experiment. Okay. So those were the main drivers. That's how we ended up launching it in the Philippines. That's amazing. And I've seen also that foresight that the BSP has been doing because they, I think they've been doing that also with, the, with crypto here, you know, giving it enough freedom for, for it to thrive rather than nipping it in the bud and making sure that it's, you know, a lot of people get pruned even before they even start, right? But with this opportunity that you've seen, I also want to find out because, again, you raised before you even had a product. And now I, now I understand how you were able to do it because you know how to make sure that the, before you even created the team, you had the accolades and the experience to get this whole thing done. But I'm pretty sure there's still nuances. Now, I want to understand, Greg, so you got that head start with the BSP. What are the next steps that you did to build the team? Who did you surround yourself with? Because there's nuances for sure in the Philippines that you need to also overcome. Yeah, I think for, for the task that we had at hand, you know, it was not so simple to find a lot of people in the Philippines just because it's such an early stage of development, right? When it comes to, you know, bank, tech, fintech. So there's not a lot of people, even in other places in Southeast Asia, who've done this and seen this at scale. So our team is very international. I think we have four or five nationalities in the team. Wow. And uh, we have, you know, I think 
at this point, like half of the team is Filipino, but the other half, yeah. senior team, yeah. But the other half, you know, we got one Singaporean Indian, one Indian Indian, both are like super international with like experience in tons of other countries. We got one American guy, but who's basically, you know, more German than American, I think, mentally. But like that was his <laughs> early career. Uh, uh, who's also got like, you know, 20 years of consumer finance experience. Okay. You know, uh, we have we have a Ukrainian. Uh, we have me who is God knows what it is at this point. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, that's uh, we had to assemble the team. And, you know, we paid a lot of attention to the skills that we bring and the culture that we bring. Now we talked about culture. And that's one thing I love talking about in this podcast. I never get tired of it. What was that culture that you're trying to build in Tani? Because again, that's the glue that holds everything together, right? And I actually saw that one of my former colleagues works with you. It's Miss Wang, right? Oh, yeah. I used to work with her when I was in my first job in Groupon. So I know what type of uh, culture that she brings. And I know specifically that, you know, it, in order for a company to thrive, not just resources matter, the culture Matters. Can you describe a little bit what the tonic culture is, especially now that you're multinational? You know, you got to make sure that that culture is adaptable to to all the nuances that there's going to be involved. So it's actually it's not as complicated as it sounds. You know, I was very lucky pretty early on in my career to have had the advantage of this um, leadership seminar at Stanford, um, where I, like spent a week there, and it just like really taught me a lot of things about you know leadership and specifically culture. Right. So basically for me, a business is like a family, right? It's people coming together to do stuff, right? And they will be successful at doing the stuff if the sense of togetherness exists and they will fail if the sense of togetherness doesn't exist. So what does that sense of togetherness comes from? It comes from shared sense of mission for a better word. So what do I want to do in my life? Right. And people have to have that, but it's a personal mission, right? And that mission has to be like somehow aligned with what the business stands for. And then there's values. And values are basically simple like rules for what are we like as a family. Right. Bye. So we articulated those rules. I've I've learned uh, you know, at another training session, I picked up a really cool trick of how to evoke those values from the team members. And we articulated that very early on in the, in the uh, stage of the company. So it was like the first couple of top managers that we had, me and a couple other guys, we just sat down and wrote this down. And we like, you know, found those values that the three of us had in common. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those were things, you know, it was five things. You know, it was reliability, was teamwork, uh, was sense of humor. Uh, we're the yep. only bank that I know of in the world. <laughs> the sense of humor is one of the core corporate values, man. Yep. Uh, so, I love it. Also, I love it. Hey, that's important, right? And a couple other things, right? So once we articulated those, then what we do is we integrate these values into uh, all of our HR processes, mm. right? And it's basically, you know, when we're hiring people, we're looking for people who exhibit these values and can, you know, when they talk to us at the interview, we look for that. Or if they talk about the antithesis of one of our values, that's a black mark, right? Because you know those people will not fit in. They will be rejected. It will be a, you know, a foreign body in your organization. Mm-hmm. So we do that. Uh, you know, then uh, we evaluate people based on how well they manifest the values. Uh, we continue to reinforce the values. We have this thing called the Values Champion, which every month one of the employees gets like the Value Champion Award for something that, you know, has been an example. I go out there and I like, you know, explain to everybody, hey, this dude or this gal did did this awesome thing. And like, you know, at a critical thing uh, when everybody was so stressed, they like cracked an awesome joke 
and exhibited our sense of humor. And because of that, the team was able to pull through the all-nighter or something, right? Yep. So it's these ki kinds of examples that uh, you have to continue to reinforce and evaluate. And that's how you ensure that cohesion. And when that cohesion is there, then the team will perform miracles. So uh, that, that's, that, that's how we do it. I love it. I love, that. I love your answer. I love how you described it because, again, it takes a mature founder who's been there. Again, because I've also tried it. It's a super cool official. Law, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, Cold War teaches you about values, man. <laughs> <laughs> With all the babushkash telling you what, the, what those values are. There That's you. it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it takes a founder who's been through multiple stops of startups and businesses to create as a finite set of rigid values, the non-negotiables, and the fluid values that allows the team to thrive, right? Because it's so hard to get that done if you are a first-time entrepreneur because you don't even know that yourself. But through time, through seeing multiple iterations of what values work and what matches your, your persona, then you're able to really craft a thing that works and you just literally choose the right people that fit the bill based on what you stand for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, was, I was really lucky, Ron. Uh, I, I got, you know, because first 10 years of my career, private equity, like nobody cares about this stuff in private equity. Private equity is all about Excel, PowerPoint, uh, strategy and numbers and like right. you know, all this human stuff, like the private equity guys, it's all like black magic, right? Yep. But like, so when I started being a manager and being a founder and building the business, I was very lucky that like in my second year of that, I was able to go to that seminar and it's like a light bulb went off in my head, right? It's like all of a sudden they were like, okay, this is what it means like to lead people, <laughs> you know, right. an organization of people. And they gave me the skill set uh, that I then, you know, developed the rest of my life. All but I right. uh, was very lucky that, you know, I had that kind of mentorship and training opportunity. All right. That's amazing. Now let's take our last break. And when we come back, let's now talk about how you launched this big rocket and went sonic boom into amazing to really putting out tonic as a product and how you just blew every record away that's out there as the first digital neo neo bank in the philippines so let's talk about that more after the break hey hustlers it's time to talk business once again and we're excited to share a bit more info about our sponsors crowd solutions and again just like what i said at the start of the episode you should check out sprouts payroll starter you grow your own startup because this bundle that they have is literally what you need to take your startup to the next level as you grow your employees and this bundle is your key to freedom including payroll outsourcing to experts a subscription to timekeeping and attendance software and government compliance services Sprouts payroll starter has you covered for payroll BIR SSS and taxes all the stuff that no founder loves to do so let Sprout handle the busy work and say goodbye to lines and tax payment stress all this for as low as 5,000 pesos. Again, that's just 5,000 pesos all in for your payroll and HR needs. So visit sprout.eh payroll-starter-monthly-5k or again, just click the link in the description box of this episode to elevate your business management game. And again, big thank you to Sprout Solutions for liberating your time for what truly matters. 
Hey, hustlers, wish there was an easy way to open a bank account and grow your money without the hassle of lengthy application process and income documents? Well, I got good news because today's sponsor, Uno Digital Bank, is here to help you achieve your financial goals. You can easily open an account with the Uno app in just five minutes and one valid ID. And as one of the six digital banks licensed by the Banco Central ng Pilipinas, the company is committed to providing customers with simpler, better, and more accessible banking. Last year, Uno Bank was recognized by the Asia Banking and Finance Awards and bagged the title Open Banking Initiative of the Year due to the success of its partnership with Gcash, one of the Philippines' leading mobile wallet platforms. And with the Uno mobile app, you can access an hashtag UnoReady savings account and enjoy daily interest crediting. With their hashtag UnoEarn or hashtag UnoBoost time deposit accounts, you can enjoy a high interest rate of up to 6.5% per annum. Enjoy monthly payouts with hashtag UnoEarn and flexible tenors with hashtag UnoBoost. Other app features include pay bills, the Uno Virtual Debit MasterCard, life insurance, scan and pay with QRPH, and phones. And the one thing that I really love about Uno Digital Bank is they're open to collaborate with a lot of Filipino startups. I've had a chance to see the partnerships that they've had lined up with the startups that they have, and it's truly exciting to see how a digital bank like Uno can enable startups to unlock the power of fintech through digital banking. So if you're ready to elevate your banking experience, download the Uno mobile app today from the Google Play Store or App Store. Or if you want to collaborate with them, I'll be happy to give you an intro. Just shoot us an email at hello at huffleshare.com. Hey, hustlers, I hope you're having a great 2024 so far. As you know, a lot of startups had a very challenging 2023, and hopefully things are going to do better this year for a lot of us. Not just because it's the year of the dragon, but also because our sponsor, Dragon Pay, is here to help your startups process payments in the most efficient way. Established in 2010, Dragon Pay empowers businesses of all sizes to accept and disperse payments through secure and convenient channels giving your customers the flexibility to choose the payment method that suits them best. With over 85 partner channels, 35,000 partner branches nationwide, including QRPH, e-wallets, crypto, buy now, pay later, and many more. They also process an astonishing 15 million transactions processed globally each month. Dragon Pay is your trusted choice for online payments. And here's something to show you how legit Dragon Pay is. Dragon Pay was named Fintech of the Year at last year's Philippine Fintech Festival in 2020. So let's make 2024 extra prosperous for you and your startup in this year of the Dragon. For more details, head on over to dragonpay.ph. That's dragonpay.ph. Trust the pioneer, trust Dragon Pay. And we're back in the break. We are still with Greg Krasnov, who then told us again what amazing culture they have. And now, it's before culture, we got to talk product. We got to talk about hustle, right? And I, I want to find out because you literally just knocked it out of the park. You did an amazing job doing go-to market and really getting traction fast. Because, and this is where a lot of startups really, you know, bungle it. And, you know, they botch just this whole thing. And, or even if they do, they just have a quick blip and then they die out. 
how were you able to launch and you know attract how how many is it now 2.2 billion pesos of of digital deposits that's fucking amazing it's not even i can't even fathom it how how are you able to launch a product this fast and this good Sorry, Ron. Uh, you wanted me to correct you, I guess. It's 2.5, yes, right? Uh, 2.5. <laughs> I missed no, it by 300. Yeah. Thank you for accentuating <laughs> the attention on that there by making go. me correct you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so look, uh, basically, when we were building the product, we were very, very careful to evaluate the market needs. And you know, I'm a big believer in this framework called the six Ps, uh, which is called you know marketing mix. So yep. I've been using it you know, my whole career and kind of that's... That's the way you win. Uh, you just like, there are these six parameters, you know, price, promotion, process, product, yep. et cetera. And you just compare yourself on each one of these against the competition that is out there. And what you're shooting for is to have a very clear, you know, appeal to the consumer on as many of these as possible, um, on as many axes, right? So we actually, we, we evaluated the customer needs and what we saw is, okay, first thing that Filipinos said is like, we... Uh, would love to save, but we don't need another saving account. Uh, we need help right. saving. <laughs> you know, right. plenty of saving accounts out there, but we need help saving, right? Because, yep. you know, uh, I think Filipinos are more in the mode of like, let's take the salary out of the ATM, yep. go spend it, have That's some nice that. Shopping, dinner. whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's uh, let's party for the next week. Then for the following week, we go to the five We're sixes broke. and we borrow. You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> and then we do it all over again, right? Right, right. So, like that was uh, one of the messages, and so uh, we created our product framework around that. We we introduced something called Stashes. That basically wow. it's a target-based saving um, device that you can like you know help yourself save by literally like saying, okay, this is for you know my child's education. Put your kid's picture there, or put Harvard picture there. I don't care what you put there. Whatever helps you save, right? It's it's a stash for that particular. So you link the emotion. To that outcome, you help mm. the person save, right? Uh, another thing we noticed is Filipinos were like, you know, super uh, communal in how they save, right? There's the Pabuagan, there's, you know, all the like family saving situations wow. when people like, you know, put stuff into the Coke bottle or bamboo, right. uh, you know, out in the villages or whatever. So like, and that's still there and people do that a lot. So, um, you know, we said, okay, hey, can we take that behavior online? So we said, okay, let's do a group stash. Something that you know hasn't been done before, uh, actually wow. at that point anywhere. And so we have this group stash where you know if you are saving for a motorbike, you can like invite all your like uh, you know family and uncles and aunties and whatever, right, right, uh, and they can like chip in for your motorbike. And guess what? Like all sides of the family will get notifications of who put in how much, so you can wow. get a bit of competition going between your uncles, you know, nice. like uh, who's richer, right? <laughs> uh, like. Because you know, like how different sides of the family love to show off in front of each other, right? Right. So uh, that's the kind of thing that you know we we introduced some real innovation, and nobody's like really done that. Uh, term deposit was another one. You know, at the point that we were bringing a digital term deposit, uh, like nobody's really put that into an app. You know, you had to go to a bank branch if you wanted to make a term deposit for the longer term. So we're really helping people save, and you know, price wise. So that's product uniqueness, mm. right? You know, price uniqueness. You know, we think that the, you know, half a percent to 1% that the big Filipino banks are giving to their deposit customers that it's a complete ripoff. Mm. Uh, you know, that's not fair because the inflation right. is higher than that. So effectively, you know, the Filipinos are paying their banks for holding their money. If you like subtract exactly. the interest rate, you subtract the inflation, right? You're right. paying the bank for keeping your money there. Um, right. That's not fair. So um, we said, okay, what's, 
you know, we have a very different cost structure. We don't have branches. We don't have so many people. Uh, you know, can we pass on some of that saving to our customers and give them a better interest rate? And that's what we've done. Uh, so we're headlining at, um, you know, 6% interest rate, which is the highest in the Philippines today. And, uh, you know, similar things on, on promotion. Uh, you know, another thing that we saw that Filipinos were really fed up with their banks talking down to them. You know, like uh, being these big, intimidating institutions with gold and marble and all that. Like, you know, that's why nobody goes there, you know, like because right. <laughs> you have to like dress nice and feel like all, you know, uncomfortable yep. at the branch because they're going to judge you and, you know, like like how you dress. And, right. You know, like, like basically, uh, that's another thing that we completely changed the language. We said, hey, we're not tonic bank. We're tonic. Right. Uh, we're approachable. We're cool. We're fun. We're nice. Uh, we want our customer to fall in love with us. And so we call our customers Han and love. And we wow. sign our email with XOXOXO, wow. right? So hugs, because we want them to dump their ex-bank and initiate their neo-banking romance with us, right? There you go. So very different promotion language and also the openness of that language. You know, we're very transparent with where we don't have any hidden fees. We're very, if we change the fees, uh, you know, we always like talk about why we did it, what it is that we're trying to achieve here, how it benefits the customer, et cetera. So uh, that if we do make fees, then, you know, at least they know like what it's for and exactly what it is. They don't feel like they're being screwed. So that's, yeah, the, those are the elements of the value proposition. And I think that's what works for our customers. That's amazing. Now, I'm curious. And I, I always uh, find it interesting when I ask this question because I, I I understand more of what how the business dynamic works and whatever you can share. But what are the metrics you guys care about most in Tonic that you can share? Don't share out those private metrics. I just, I just want to understand what are these North Stars or what are these things? How, how, you, how do you rally a team to a common goal? Because sometimes those metrics are technically the make or break for a startup to, to, for it to work. Well, there's the usual, right? The deposit balances, the daily increase in deposit balances, you know, daily uh, new clients onboarded. Now we're going to be launching loans. So it's going to be about the loans, how many loans we've sold, et cetera. So like that's the standard stuff. But uh, there's also stuff that we track to make sure that we're good enough uh, and we're above the competition on the quality of what we deliver. Mm. And this is something that's like super important for us, especially at this stage when we're still like getting better at this. So things, for example, like our onboarding conversion. Well, first of all, like out of the customers that start the onboarding journey, how many of them get to the end and actually open the account? Right. right? Then drill down. Why is that happening? Why are they dropping off? We call people to ask and we bug the hell out of them. We're like, guys, why'd you do it? Why don't, why don't you come in? (laughs) What happened? Like, is it us? Is it us? If it's us, tell us, you know, like what's wrong with us? You know, like, (laughs) so uh, no, seriously, but like uh, that's the process. Then, then once they've um, uh, onboarded, you know, how quickly do they fund their account? So we actually look at that on a vintage basis. Uh, so, um, you know, and what we find is like the majority of our clients, it takes them about four days to fund their account and it'll vary, you know, between different customer types. And we're kind of trying to understand that, right? Um, we're looking at, uh, you know, payments. So uh, in the payments experience that they have, um, uh, what is the drop-off rate of inbound payments, outbound payments? What is that caused by, you know, because we're, we're trying to make sure that it's running smooth for our customers. Um, and we're still, of course, we're still, you know, fixing a bunch of bugs because we're only a couple of months in the sure. market. 
Um, so we're looking at, you know, the bug stats, the bug reports, yep. uh, you know, we got our incident tickets and, you know, trying to hammer those down, but it's right. the customer experience that we're very, very focused on to make sure that what we're bringing to the customer is something that he loves, like, not just like, okay, it's just there, but something he really loves, you know, something That's that amazing. will really put us way above anybody else. Right. Right. And again, this is just a testament that you're doing really well, because again, just last month, right. You just raised again another seventeen million dollar in pre-series B funding. That that, that totals at forty four million dollars now to date as we speak. I don't know if by this time you're listening to it, like a couple of days after there was a been a uh, new a new round. But I, I'm curious in Asia, at least in the here in the Philippines and in the region, this type of money is very unheard of in terms of check sizes. What did you do right? to attract that much investment early on that it's not even, you know, this is not even Series B yet. Ron, it's, it's a little different for us because we're not a typical startup. We're a bank, right? Exactly. So we got a bank license and a bank license means a few things that need to be done differently from day one, from yeah. the outset. You need to build a big tech stack and actually, you know, the amount of money on which we got from launch, you know, from start to launch, it was like less than 10 million bucks. And for wow. a new startup bank, especially fully digital bank, uh, yeah. it's pretty unheard of. So we did, um, you know, it's, it's not a big tech investment to pull off the scalable kind of infrastructure that we put in place. Core banking, card processing, you know, everything, mm-hmm. right? So we have about, you know, 25 positions in our tech stack that we integrated from third-party vendors, plus our own development on the app and the digital app. Right. So, um, you know, that, that's one thing. Another thing is, and all of that stuff, you know, because we're a bank, we have to run to a different level of resilience than of even an e-wallet, right? Because mm-hmm. if I am down for a couple hours and, you know, the customer wants his money out and I can't give him his money out, for example, and that customer goes on Facebook, and on the group called Tonic Bank Users and goes, hey, guys, I can't get my money out. Next thing I know, I got 5,000 dudes like trying oh, to take their right. money out, right? right? And so like, it's very dangerous. And that's why the regulator requires that the level of operational redundancy that we run to is like very, very different than a typical tech startup, right? Makes sense. Makes so that's sense. why we had to like raise, you know, what seems like a lot of money is because the level of infrastructure you need to build. But the good news is, with the bank license, uh, you're in partnership with the government on the retail deposits where the partnership ensures your deposits, but then they expect you to have that level of resilience uh, in the infrastructure. And then you can achieve some really cool things if you make that partnership work well. You can really scale into billions of dollars of balance sheet without much additional tech investment. Right. right? Because this is is very scalable, all-in-cloud infrastructure. So. That is amazing. Now, uh, let me just ask you a couple of uh, pay-it-forward questions to wrap our season up. Because I want to know, from your point of view, you always have seen patterns, recognized patterns, but I want to know your MO in recognizing opportunities that you want to pursue. Because a lot of the listeners of Hustle Share are still just in that precipice of finding, hey, should I be an entrepreneur? What should I see? How do I uh, recognize opportunities? And I always tell them, look for blue oceans. Right. Don't go into a to an ocean where you can't find a uh, mini ocean that you can't dominate and get get be a first mover or be at least the first or second player in that. And 
sometimes that's what, that's a big mistake that I always see that a lot of people just think I want to be the next whatever. If you, but if you want to be the next whatever, you're already too late because <laughs> you're you're trying to be the next whatever uh, incumbent that's already there. But what's your mo in recognizing opportunities, Craig? Look, I, I'm too old to be a Zuckerberg or you know whatever, like, <laughs> just like invent new business models and stuff like that. Right. And you know I'm not that creative on like inventing business models and stuff. So I've had a couple of good ideas, right? Like, you know, me and my partner, we had, you know, good ideas for Flow and Credit Lab. Those were like, you know, right. uh, but like even on Flow, like, you know, it's been done in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I think wanting to be, you know, I don't know, the the Facebook of Southeast Asia, there's nothing wrong with that, right? right? Uh, but what you got to look for is, okay, A, the size of the opportunity, is it worth my time? Correct. B, yeah, can I be the first? If I can be the first, what are the moats that I'm going to be able to build to yes. keep the other guys out, right? That's the VCs love that, but like you got to think that too, right? Uh, you have segments in tech that are pretty easy to replicate. That you know maybe like you're going to have a hundred guys like copying you the next day, and then erode away all your margin, right? And you don't really want to be there because that's not a valuable business, right? And then finally, and that, that's probably the most important one. Which of these things can I get passionate about? Because I don't think it's worth doing anything unless you're doing it with your full heart and you know your kind of full attention and can get really excited about. Because life is too short, man. And okay. you know, basically, uh, yeah, you really need to be like all out. And um, uh, to do that, you need to get super excited and stay exactly. super excited. So yeah, I think those will be my main things. And if you can like find the confluence of those factors, then you might have a winner. All right. Sounds good. Now, last question before I let you go. Through all this uh, whole thing, I'm pretty sure you've met a ton of people that have given you great advice. But through this whole journey, through you know, ups and downs, ebbs and flows, through all these territories that you're, you've, 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 you've seen, what do you think is the best advice you've ever received? Yeah, the best advice I got uh, was probably from, from this gentleman that I used to work for him uh, in my early days in the U.S., a uh, great entrepreneur, I mentioned him, yeah, Bernie Reicher. So he told me, Greg, you know, you need to develop like the ability for people to not know what you're thinking. Like hiding your emotions and your reactions and really acting out only once you've thought things through. Um, like that's such an important feature that I found put me in very good position in life uh, because I've taken that to heart. I tried to learn that and I think I've gotten reasonably good at that, but that really helps. That really helps. Cause like it, it forces you to act on your uh, rational uh, analysis of the situation rather than just your emotional reaction. That's amazing. Just like what Lady Gaga said, pop, 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 poker face. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. You break it down, bro. You break it down. <laughs> But again, thanks very much, Greg, for such an amazing season finale. Again, amazing. But before I let you go, what is next for Tonic? And if people want to check it out, they're going to even reach out to you as we collaborate again. Borrow some money. Where do they go and how did they do that? Yeah, um, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, You know, I'm I'm there. I'm checking it regularly. Uh, You know, uh, obviously, we have all the channels. You know, at the bank, um, if you guys want to talk to us or just download the app and, you know, onboard into the app takes you less than five minutes. You could be doing it on the couch in your house or wherever else. 
we don't really care. Um, and check it out and we'd love to see you as a customer. All right. Thanks, Greg. But before I let you go, follow us in whatever podcast app you're listening to, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or what that is. We did see some show notes. I mean, did, did, did see some show notes. If we did say some jargon, it's going to be in the show notes on hustleshare.com. And if you want to be part of our little community uh, where, you know, you can talk to other hustleshare listeners, it's going to be in the hustleshare community on Facebook. And lastly, message us on our chatbot at m.me slash hustleshare powered by chatbot. Again, Greg, thank you very much. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate the time. All right. All right. And I'll see you guys next season.